Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information, go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. time we want to welcome you and let you know we are on part three of a series we're doing on spiritual warfare as you could probably tell from that little video that we just played there and uh, let me just bring us all up to speed on the same page with where we are so in the first week we did in part one we talked about how there is a war there's a war satan has declared war on those who follow the commandments of god but there's a punchline right does anybody remember what that was it's a no civilian war One of our biggest things is we think we can just somehow avoid it. We can sit by and watch it. But the Bible actually says we are either prisoners or soldiers. Those are the only two options. No civilian options in this war. And so then last week, uh, we began to touch on the idea that God has complete authority and the enemy knows it, right? God has complete authority and the enemy knows it. The punchline there comes out of the question, well, if God has complete authority, if the enemy lost, and the enemy knows it. Why is there even spiritual warfare? Why do we need to talk about it? Punchline was, the enemy doesn't fight fair. The enemy doesn't fight fair. He doesn't care that he lost. He's going to see if he can make the rest of the game miserable for you. He's a sore loser. He's a bully. He's going to see what he can get away with. That's most of what you kind of saw in that video. You know, just your coffee falling in your lap at the wrong time, water splashing on your face. i tell you the truth. I wish that the only difficulties I had from Satan were like that. Come on, anybody with me? It would be great if all I had to worry about was when he is just trying to step out of line, when he is just trying to be annoying. But today we're going to answer a much more difficult question. And we, we, we touched on it a little bit last week, and I told you I'd come back and really answer it this week. I actually got emails after part one, and somebody said, but what about it? I said, come back for week three. So here we go. Today we're going to answer this question. What right does the enemy have to mess with us? That sounds like a big one, doesn't it? All right, so let me go ahead and tell you this. First of all, this is the deep end of the pool. Out of the whole series today, deep end of the pool. This is going to be like taking a sip of water from a fire hydrant. So are you guys, you got to buckle up. Everybody ready for this one? I'm going to go ahead and tell you, this is not one of those messages where you go uh, to the bathroom in 10 minutes. Don't do that. So do not go get a coffee refill and do not go get rid of the coffee you've already had. I need you to sit tight. And hear all of this. This is, this is really important as we talk about what right does the enemy have to mess with us. Because on one hand, we've got people who say, well, you know, uh, we live in a fallen world. The Bible says that this world belongs to Satan. And if we live in it, he can just kind of mess with us. And life can be tough. And then on the other hand, you've got people who say, but I'm a Christian. I belong to God. The enemy's got no right to mess with me, right? So we've got those two different extremes. When I was in college, I got around some people who were really into this whole spiritual warfare topic. And so I was definitely leaning towards this hand. And so we were going around just like rebuking the devil for everything. Because, you know, we're like, man, we're the man. You know, because spiritual arrogance. Anybody know what I'm talking about? We could do whatever. It was also like MC Hammer days. We're kind of like, you can't touch this. I belong to God. Get your back out of here, devil. Who do you think you are? I mean, come on. Anybody ever done that with me? You sit, come on over here, let me rebuke them devils off of you. I'll make you well. True story, one time my car wouldn't start. I laid hands on my car and rebuked the devil out of my car. What right does the enemy have to mess with me? 
and with you. I would love to say none at all. But let me show you a little conversation that took place between Satan and Jesus. And by the way, if we want to know anything about spiritual warfare, that sounds like a pretty darn good place to go and find out something. Jesus and Satan having a conversation. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 5. And, and we're actually in the middle of an encounter between Satan and Jesus. Here's the deal. Satan is foolish enough to think he can get Jesus to come over to the other side. Now, that, that sounds pretty stupid, doesn't it? But, I mean, after all, Satan was in heaven and thought he could take God's chair. That was, so he's not proven to be the smartest guy around. So he is, is saying, Jesus, I will give you such and such if you will worship me instead. There we are. Verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Now, if you will allow me, we're going to have a nerd moment. Can we just nerd out for a little bit and talk about three Greek words here for a second? First of all, if you say no, too bad, because I got the microphone, but here, here's the, here's kind of the, okay, let me go ahead and tell you, this is going to hurt today. So any chance you get to laugh, take it. Any chance. And if you just want to, just laugh. Because some of this time, you're going to be wishing I was not on stage. All right, so anyway, back to what I said. Here, here's the reason. If you ever go to church and the pastor's like, well, let me tell you about the Greek word here. And you're like, what? I don't care about Greek, dude. That's why. I mean, unless we're talking about like a salad or, or a restaurant, I don't care about Greek. All right. That was one of those times. Come on, you got to flow with me here. Here's the reason. The Greek language, which the New Testament was written in, and the English language are not equal. They're not on par they're not on the same course. Most of the time, a Greek word does not have an English word equivalent. What it has for a Greek word, it has an English sentence or even paragraph as an equivalent. You know what I'm saying? And, and so I don't want to like make you lose faith in your Bible. You can, lose, you can read the Bible, and at English level, you're going to get a good understanding, but sometimes we don't get the deepest understanding. So we're going to nerd out here for a few moments on three Greek words, and it is going to radically blow your mind about the relationship we have with Satan in this world. All right, so you see those three underlined words right there. We're going to start with this one, authority. Greek word, exousia, you don't need to know that, doesn't matter. Here's what you need to know. It means a rightful, unimpeded power to act, possess, or control. Satan says, I can give you a rightful, unimpeded power to act, possess, or control because I have it. I've already got it. I already have, over all the kingdoms of this world, a rightful, unimpeded power to act and control. I can give it to you. And you know why I can give it to you? Because it was given to me. That Greek word, delivered, it was delivered to me. And what deli delivered means is given over to, especially in terms of a right. Delivered over to, especially in terms of a right. All right, let me give you a, an analogy to help you understand this. When I went to college, I had a friend of mine named Eric. And, and anybody had that guy in college that seemed like he didn't have a place to live except your couch? Come on, you know what I'm talking about? Eric lived on my couch. I don't know why, because he had a place to live. But what Eric did not have was a car. And where I lived my senior year was closer to the music building that I went to every day than the parking space assigned to me. So I just left my car at home and walked. And so what I told Eric is anytime you need my car, you, just, you can just have it. The keys are under the mat because that's where I leave my keys. 
I seriously, I left my keys under the mat of my car every day until I moved to Columbia. Move to Columbia, take your keys out of your car. Good, you're getting it. There you go. All right, but until then, I didn't care. So I gave Eric the right. I said, Eric, you have the right to use my car anytime you want. True story. I would be walking to class, got my book bag on, and I'm crossing the street, and there goes my car. Hey, Eric, how you doing? I would show up at a coffee shop. My car was already in the parking lot. Eric, I mean, it was just great. Eric had the right to use my car, and that is what Satan is saying. It's like, the right has been given to me. I've already got it, and I can give it to you because I have it over this world. Now, here's the thing about the Greek word world. There are two Greek words. One of them is cosmos, and it refers to the geographical earth, the round ball that floats around the sun, and that's not the word he uses. He actually uses a different word. And so I, I, before I tell you what it, what it means, when I imagine this picture, when I'm reading the Bible and I'm just kind of imagining in my head what it looks like, I imagine Satan and Jesus standing up on a hill and they're looking out over creation. And, and I imagine a scene that's a lot like first century stuff, you know, like Rome and these buildings made out of stone and mud and wood and rocks and all this cool stuff, you know, like anybody ever seen pictures of Rome, right? First century. That's what I imagine. But that would be cosmos. The word here is actually oikumime, which again, you don't need to know that, but here's what it actually means. The inhabited world. Not the geographical world, but the inhabited world. So when you imagine that picture like me, I was imagining it wrong. It's not about the buildings. Satan isn't saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus, you see that palace? I can give that to you because it's mine. No, no, no. What he's saying is you see that guy down there buying bread? You see that guy over there walking his sheep? You see that lady taking her kids to kindergarten? They belong to me. I have a rightful, unimpeded power to act or control because it was given to me rightfully over the inhabited world. Everything you see out there, it's mine. Now catch this. What's most important is what comes next. The next verse. What did Jesus say? Actually, what's most important is what he didn't say. He didn't say, Nuh-uh, ain't so. I got three kids right now. That's all I hear in my house. But just to annoy his sister, one of my sons, I won't tell you which one, I can stand on my head. Nuh-uh, ain't so, you cannot. I can ride my bike faster than daddy can drive his car. Nuh-uh, ain't so, you can't. Just stop it. That is not what Jesus said. You know why Jesus didn't say that? Because he knew nuh-uh wasn't right. He knew Satan actually did have rightful, unimpeded power to act or control the inhabited world because it had been delivered to him. How did he get it? Well, people. Two in particular are called Adam and Eve. You see, the way it works, God said, here's what I want you to do. And Satan showed up and whispered in Eve's ear and says, mm, I don't know about that. You know you want to do something else instead. And, and he attacked God's character. He said, you know what God really is trying to do, right? Okay, so he attacked God's character. And then... He, he, he told them that God's plans were not best. And so what they ended up doing is they took their wants. I think I want what's on that tree. And their reasoning. You know, I don't think God wants what's best for me. And they chose their wants and their reasoning above God's ways. And in that moment, they gave over all authority. Because the Bible tells us when it was created, he gave it to Adam, said it's all yours. But when you stop following me. And so when Adam and Eve chose their ways and their reasoning, all of a sudden, they opened the door and gave Satan the keys to their lives. Now, at this point, some of you would ask, okay, well, that's pretty good, but 
about Jimmy? I'm a Christian. And you see, I know that this world is broken, and I know some of it was given away, but I'm a Christian. I've got, like, spiritual Teflon, right? We think we're like one of those frying pans. The devil throws something at us, and it just slides right off. The devil can't stick to me. He can't mess with me. And the reason is we quote a verse. And, the, well, the real problem is we quote part of a verse. You know what Christians are really good at doing? Memorizing half a verse. We take the words we like, the ones that work in our favor, and we memorize those. Let me give you an example. So this is one of the verses that people raised after part one of the series when they said, we don't need to talk about spiritual warfare because the enemy's got nothing on us. And, and they pointed me to 1 John 5, 18. Here's what it says. We know that everyone who has been born of God, God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Awesome. Let's go home. Except we quoted half of the verse, and we didn't get the most important part, and that's what comes after it. Here's what it really says. We know that everyone who has been born of God, which is us, does not keep on sinning. And because they do not keep on sinning, he who is born of God, Jesus, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Don't you like those statements in the Bible that have ifs and thens? You know we don't like those at all, do we? And it says we know two things. We know, we know that we are of God, but we also know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We're from God, and when we don't sin, God protects us. But we also know the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So what happens if we sin? Here's the problem. Anybody in here not sin? What this is actually telling us when it says, here's what we know, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, is this. To experience the effects of a fallen, broken world in your life requires you to do nothing but get out of bed. Just get out of bed, walk out the door, and you are going to experience the rule and reign of Satan in his world, right? That's what it's telling us. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It is a passive activity. I want you to think about it like this. When a father is sitting around and, and he's watching TV and he looks over and his little kid is about to touch the stove, the hot stove, and he says, no, 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 don't touch the hot stove. And the kid looks at him like, uh, come on, parents, y'all know what I'm talking about. That little look like, I'm going to do it anyway. And he goes to reach for the hot stove. Here's the thing. If the child reaches out and touches the hot stove, the father does not have to do anything for the child to experience the consequences. You with me? The father doesn't have to get up and say, oh, well, let me come over here and burn your hand and tell you what you shouldn't have done. No, no, no. He's going to burn his hand as a natural process for disobeying his father, right? You see, it's another way with my kids right now. Like, I have to decide. If you disobey me, what am I going to do? You disobey, am I going to take away your iPad? That's active, not passive. Or am I going to take away your bicycle? I'm going to keep you from going outside and playing for a whole day. Hey, this is funny. So I just went away for three days. And the day before I was leaving, my son disobeyed me. And so I looked at him and said, you know what? You are not allowed to play outside or use your iPad all day tomorrow. And my wife looked at me and said, what? You just punished me. <laughs> that was active. You don't have to do anything. God doesn't have to do anything active to bring the consequences of our sin into our lives. The consequences already exist all around us because we live in a fallen world and it's under the power of the evil one. Let me give you an analogy. And uh, here's the deal. You need to know, I've never been to prison, but I've watched prison movies, okay? Yeah. Anybody ever seen a prison movie? Yeah. 
All right, so I'm going to preach off a prison movie, and that's we're going to hope it's true because it was in the movies. Everything in the movies is true. All right, so here's the way this works. You see some guy, he gets his food, and he goes to the table, and he sits it down. And the first thing that he does in prison with his food is he puts a hand over it like this, right? Because you got to protect your prison food. And if somebody reaches for it, then you stick out your fork the other direction, right? You're going to get hurt. You touch my food, right? Okay, it's in the movies. Don't blame me. Here's the thing. This is active. You don't have to do anything. If you walk up and you put your plate down and you just lean back, you don't have to say, I don't think I'm going to eat my dessert today. It's already gone. You don't have to tell somebody, hey, would you like my cookie? No, they've already taken it. It is the natural passive order of things. What it requires is not for something to be said there. It requires an active protection. And so what we don't get sometimes is that little phrase, does not keep on sinning. But our sin opens the door for God to remove his protection. Why would he do that? Man, that is a great question. See, here's the thing. God's protection comes as an active blessing for the one who does not keep on sinning. So when we choose our ways and when we choose our reasoning over God's, what ends up happening is that protection may be removed. Can I show you an example out of scripture? One of the clearest, you do this, this happens, you don't do this, this happens kind of examples. Get, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you because y'all are nodding your head. Yeah, yeah, show us that example. You're not going to like it. It's about money. So I'm just warning you. Don't shoot the messenger. All right, here you go. So here's, here's, here's where we go. Malachi 3 says, bring the full tithe, that means the first 10% of everything you make, into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. God says, bring me the first 10% as a way to, to fund the mission, as a way that my house is able to do what it's called to do, and so that you can honor me. That's what God says. He says, that's my way. That's all you need to know for today. I'm not going to preach on tithing. But follow the rest of this, what he says. Now, here's what's going to happen if you do or if you don't. Thereby put me to the test. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing Blessing, number one, until there's no more need. Number two, I will rebuke the devourer for you. Protection is number two, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear. Here's what we need to understand. In the first part of this series, we quoted another verse that says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Here's what God's saying. If you don't want to bring the full tithe, I don't have to tell him to devour. The devourer is already devouring. He's looking for someone. He is waiting to eat your lunch. He wakes up every day saying, let me see what's in your lunch sack. I, I want it. It's mine. And if you don't get the active blessing of God, the active protection of God, the devourer is already there. The funny thing about this exactly plays out because people always say, if they don't tithe, they always tell me, I don't tithe because I can't afford to tithe. Exactly. Because when you didn't do the first sentence where God says, do it my way, then the devourer was already devouring. I have never met anybody who says, I don't honor God and my financial life is awesome. I have, I've never heard that sentence. It hasn't happened yet. You see, many Christians will then say something like this to me. So just, just flow with me, right? I say, don't go away yet. Many Christians will come to me at this point and say, no, 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 Jimmy. See, here's the problem when you quote verses like that. You need to understand, I'm a Christian. Jesus died for me. Jesus became the curse for me. This is, in my opinion, probably the most misunderstood doctrine of all the Christian faith. People always say, well, Jesus became a curse for me, so you know, I, I'm good to go. I don't have to worry about sin. I don't have to worry about consequences because Jesus became a curse. We misunderstand. Here, let me tell you what. Here's the curse. It's called the curse of the law of sin and death. 
And what it says is this. You're a sinner. Sin has to be paid for by the shedding of blood, the giving of life. The curse is because you've sinned, unless you're perfect through the law, unless you're perfect by following the rules exactly to a T, never miss one of them, the curse is that you will pay for your sins with your life. You will spend eternity in punishment away from God. That's the curse. And see, when Jesus became the curse, he set us free from that. That even though we're sinners, even though that we have messed up, we don't experience the curse, we experience blessing. It's eternal life, eternal life with Jesus in, in heaven. Are you with me? You see, we misunderstand the idea, well, God loves me and Jesus died for me, so I'm, I'm like exempt from everything. No, no, no. Let me give you an analogy. It'll make perfect sense. I'm a father. I've got four children, and I would die for my children. Come on, parents. I'd die for my children. You would die for your children. It's not even noble. It's just what you're going to do. You gave them birth, and then something just happens inside of you. If you saw your kid playing in the street, and a car is coming up and about to hit them, if you had the ability to push like a pause button, or like, you know, the Matrix movie button or something, and you could run out there and grab your child and move them out of the way and take the hit for them, you would do it without even thinking about it, right? I talk to parents all the time, and, and, and they say, I would... If my child is sick in the hospital, laying in this bed, and I'll go to the hospital and visit and pray for them, they said, man, I just wish I could take their place. I would take that sickness. I would lay in that bed for my kids. I love my kids. I would give my life for my kids. Here's the thing. I could look my four kids in the eyes and say, I would die for you. That is not a synonym for, I will never correct you. I will never teach you that what you're doing is wrong. And that's what we misunderstand as Christians. Oh, Jesus died for me, so I can't experience the consequences of my sin. God didn't say, because I love you, Jesus died for you, and therefore I'm going to let you get away with everything you ever want to do. No, no, no. There is a huge difference between salvation through Jesus and blessing through godly living. Did y'all hear that? Because this is seriously misunderstood in the church today. There is a difference between salvation through Jesus and blessing through godly living. Being forgiven for eternal life is not the same as being blessed in this one. You can be going to heaven and still be disobeying God because you are forgiven, right? So here's what happens. Question of the hour right now. Hopefully someone is asking, okay, why, Jimmy? Why? When we sin, might God choose to remove his protection? And the very simple answer is to teach us. His ways are better than our ways. And if we won't choose his ways, if we won't listen to his ways, well, then he's going to let us feel what it's like to have our ways. Because his ways work and our ways don't. And it's like that little kid. How many times does the father say, don't touch the hot stove, don't touch the hot stove, don't touch the hot stove, before you figure out, you know how they're going to learn not to touch the hot stove? They're going to touch the hot stove. That's the best way for them to learn. The best way for us to learn that our ways don't work is when God says, okay, I'm going to let you have it your way. I'm going to let you experience what that means. You want me to show it to you in the Bible? Psalm 81. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Proverbs 1. But they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised my reproof, all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their ways and have their fill of their own devices. I had an entire list of these. 
Romans chapter 1, for those of you taking notes, go and read Romans chapter 1. It's over and over. Go read Isaiah. It's like every other chapter of Isaiah. Well, I wanted this for you, but you wouldn't do it, so now you're going to have the fruit of your ways. It's the entire message of Scripture. Please, you are my prized creation. I love you. I want good for you. Do it this way, and you're going to be blessed. But if you don't, I am going to have to teach you. Matter of fact, the Bible actually says that if we love our children, it says he who loves his son will be diligent to discipline him. If God expects that for you to your child, how much more do you think he's going to do it in our own lives? You aren't going to do it my way. It's not good for you. I want good for you. So let me teach you that what you're doing is not good for you so that you will do what I want you to do so I can bless you so that you can have the life I intend for you. Good, not bad. But you got to do it my way. Now, at this point, there are many people, because I've said this to people in counseling before, and you know the answer I've gotten, some of you are thinking, not that big a deal, fruit of my ways, that's that's just not, it's okay, so, you know, whatever, here's the problem, you think there are three categories, God's ways, your ways, and Satan's ways, there's only two, you see, when Eve chose her ways, Her ways were being whispered to in the ear by Satan. There's only two categories, God's ways and everything opposed to it. So when God says, I'm going to let you have the fruit of your ways, it's actually a demonic agreement. That hurts, doesn't it? It's actually saying, well, God, I could choose you or I'm going to choose your enemy. I'm lining up with him. I'm going to do what he says. I'm going to do what he thinks. And we do this way too often. I mean, come on, I don't know a single one of us. I'm not even going to dare say that I've ever done. Here's what we do. We look in this thing right here and we go, God says this, but. Come on, laugh right now while you can, right? We laugh. God says, but. God tells me to do this, but. You know, I know that I shouldn't, but. I know that I should, but. And every time that we say, but, it's like handing the keys of your life to the enemy. It's opening a door for God to say, okay, if you don't want to do it my way, I'm going to let you learn what your way is like so that you will learn my way is better. You see, God's ways brings God's protection. Our ways gives the enemy control, rightful, unimpeded authority to act, possess, or control. So what do we do? Every week we've had a punchline. I told you at the beginning, part one, our punchline was a no civilian war. Last week, our punchline was the enemy doesn't fight fair. Today, I want you to walk away remembering this phrase. Here's what we need to do. Give the enemy no right. What right does he have to mess with us? Every right we've ever given him. You want to stop what he's doing to you? Give the enemy no right. We like to blame Adam and Eve, don't we? I mean, come on, how many of you are with me? You can't wait to get to heaven. So after we get there, before we start worshiping God, there's going to be this short little moment where we do like a little beat down on Adam and Eve. I mean, they screwed things up for us. Anybody with me? Like, come on, don't look at me like, oh, holy. We're like, I can't wait to get it. You screwed up humanity for thousands of years, and there's like several billion of us. We're going to take you outside the pearly gates there behind the school building. You're going to at least get a black eye or a wedgie or something. I mean, we're just going to like, come on, right? We've been waiting to smack Adam and Eve around for all the trouble they caused. But all they did was do it the first time. You do it every day you wake up. And I don't mean you like I'm innocent. I mean like you if you breathe. 
If we breathe every day, we wake up and we make a choice. And one of our choices, whatever it is, you know what, God? I know you said that I shouldn't go to lunch with my secretary, but my wife is a witch, to be honest. I'm going to do it anyway when we choose our ways and our reasons. God, I know you said to, to give this, but, you know, I'd really rather have a new car. God, I know you said, but, God, I know you said, but, God, stop blaming Adam and Eve. We're the ones that give that right away. Give the enemy no right. Now you should be saying, how do we do that? Very simple, two things. Number one, choices we make. The choices we make every single day. We simply need to choose God's ways over our ways. We need to choose God's ways over our wants, over our reasoning. We need to choose God's ways over our culture's ways. We don't need to say, well, everybody's doing it. Doesn't matter what everybody's doing because not everybody's getting blessed by God and protected by God. We don't need to say, well, it's cool. We don't need to say anything other than God's ways work. God's ways rule my life. Because every time we choose anything other than God's ways, we give a rightful, unimpeded power to the enemy. Right? And the second one is choices we've already made. It's not rocket science. Choices we'll make tomorrow, choices we made yesterday. That's all we need to do to give the enemy no right. You see, again, if we go back to those two views of warfare, everybody stands in one camp or the other pretty much. Which is, you know, the enemy's got nothing on me because I'm a Christian and I'm good. Or we are in a fallen world, the enemy can do anything he wants. Whichever it is, right? Well, in one of those camps, the enemy's got nothing on me. The one I told you I was in for a little while during college. We love this idea of just rebuking the devil, you know. We rebuke the devil. But here's the thing. I think most of the time when we rebuke the devil, he laughs at us. Rightfully so. I mean, is it okay? can I just talk to us for a minute? I think the church needs a little bit of teaching on how to rebuke the devil. Because there's a whole lot of people that misunderstand what's going on. Here, see, here's the thing. Back to my car and my friend Eric. Let's imagine I come home to my apartment one day in college, and I want to drive my car, and it's gone. So I call the police and report it stolen. And they go and find Eric, and they call me and say, we got your car, sir. We need you to come over here and identify the car, and, and you can see the guy that took the car. So I get over there. And they're standing there, and the police are asking Eric, excuse me, sir, is this your car? And he says, no, it's actually his. They say, okay, good, reach out your wrist, and they go for the handcuffs. And Eric's like, but, 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 but he told me I could use it. He gave me the right to use it anytime I wanted. And then the police are going to turn to me and say, is that true? Uh, yeah. Hold out your hands. You wasted our time, wasted police resources. I could have been doing something important right now. And Eric is laughing at me. Ha! I'm going to use your car to pick you up from jail. Ha! See, the enemy laughs at us. We say, Christians love to do this thing. Man, the enemy is all over my finances. I rebuke the devil. Get your hand off my finances. And Satan goes, ha! God told you to give him the first 10% or I've got free reign. <laughs> You're funny. Because you thought your 10% was better spent at Toyota. I dare you, Satan, get your hand off my marriage. Ha! Are you kidding me? You remember in your wedding when they quoted the Bible that said, love keeps no record of wrongs? Remember yesterday when you were, you always... You never remember last year when you did this to me. Seems like you invited me into your marriage. You never forgive your spouse for anything. 
Satan gets your hand off. It doesn't matter what it is. He's like, oh, you're the one that invited me here. What are you doing rebuking me? Ha, this is funny. That's what I think is going on half the time. I know y'all mad at me right now, aren't you? <laughs> See, here's the thing. You're supposed to be polite as Southerners. Don't rebuke your dinner guests when you invited them over. You can stop inviting them. But don't go rebuking people you invited. Usually you have no power to do so. See, another one of those Christian phrases we use, you just need to take authority over the devil. I know I'm messing with some of you right now. You need to take authority over the devil. You know what you need to do to take authority over the devil? Very simple words. I'm sorry, God. We've got the idea taking authority over the devil is like some fancy prayer. I take authority over you in Jesus' name. No, it got nothing to do with that. See, here's the first thing we need to do. When you think you need to rebuke the devil, I'm going to teach you the most important thing you need to do. It's called pray. And you start like this. God, does he have any right? And God may say, no, no, he's just being the devil and he's just being annoying. And then you can say, okay, devil, get your hand off my family. But most of the time, I bet, when you say, um, all right, there's a problem here. God, does he have a right? Yeah, actually, he has a right. You remember when my word says this and you did that? Yeah, he has a right. You know how you take authority over the enemy? You say, then God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I chose my ways over yours. That's how you take authority over the enemy. We don't need fancy words, and we don't need bold declarations. We need to repent. You take back the authority that you've given away by choosing God's ways, not by choosing elaborate words. Elaborate words are not going to do anything. The enemy's going to laugh at you as long as you gave him the keys to your car. Until you say, I am sorry. Now, that's kind of, that could be a downer if we stop there, wouldn't it? I'd go to lunch like, oh, my gosh, I feel like I walked out of a funeral. So how about we end on some good news? Who wants some good news? I grew, I, as many of you know, I taught school for 11 years, and I was a music teacher. But I almost became a math teacher. Many of you may not know that. Because I love math. Actually, I took every math class our high school offered. I'd had calculus by the time I left high school. And you know why? Because you always get the same answers to the same questions. I love the fact that two plus two is always the same thing. Literature class, on the other hand, teacher would say, what do you think of this poem? And one kid in class would say, oh, I think it means blue skies and eagles flying. And you ask the other kid and say, what do you think of this poem? Oh, I think it means a dark crevice and a hole in the ground. Oh, you're both great. No, you're not both great. One of you is an idiot. Poems can't mean two different things like that. I hated classes like that. What I loved were classes where the answer was always the same. A plus B equals C. Do it again, and you're still going to get C. And do it again, and you're still going to get C. I loved formulas that were predictable. So what do you think of the formula I gave you today? A, if we sin, plus B, we give the right to the enemy. Equals C, we lose our protection from God. Can I tell you my two favorite words in the Bible? But God. Amen. That's worth an amen, just so you all know. Because see, here's the thing. But God is the reason A plus B does not always equal C. But God. Here's what the Bible says. But God shows his love. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us.
2,000 years before you were even born, when your sin nature had already determined you should spend eternity in hell, but God made sure you didn't get what you rightfully gave to the devil. And instead of getting the eternity that you earned by the way that you lived, you get eternity in heaven because of two words. But God, in his grace and in his mercy. You know how people make up stats all the time? I'm going to make up one. Is that okay? At least you know I'm lying. All right? But except I think I'm actually close to right. I believe about 90, no, 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 about 99% of what we rightfully deserve, the rights we have truly given away to the enemy, that unimpeded power, I believe God impedes that power because he loves us. That's what I believe. Because here's the truth. Here's what happens. God's watching that little child, you and me, reach over to touch that hot stove, and he jumps up off the couch. He comes over and grabs your hand and says, nope, that burn is too hot. I love you too much. I want to tell you, this is a fact. If you and I experienced the fruit of all our ways, we couldn't stand it. We wouldn't be able to get out of bed. We wouldn't be able to walk. We wouldn't be able to talk. We wouldn't be able to lift our hands and worship. We'd probably be physically dead if we truly got everything we deserve. So, although we need to give the enemy no right, I don't know about you, but I worship God over all of the times that I did not get what I deserved. All of the days that I wake up and God impedes that power that I gave to Satan rightfully. Somebody needs to say amen to have a father like that. That is the kind of God we have. I want to close by giving you hopefully something you can, you can do and adapt for yourself. In the Bible, many of you have this on your walls at home. Joshua said a very famous phrase. He was leading God's people into the promised land. And as he did it, he said, hey, look, we're going to have a lot of choices. We're going to have a lot of choices. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Y'all do what you want, but I'm just giving you my example, and I hope you follow it. So if you'll allow me, I'd like to give you my example and hope you'll follow it. And so here's what I would say. As for me and my house, I am going to worship God because of his grace and mercy. I am going to wake up every day and say, thank you, God, that I don't get what I deserve that I don't feel the effects of what I've truly given into the hands of the enemy. I thank you, God, in my house that the unimpeded power I gave away, you impede simply because you love me. But as for me and my house, we will choose as much as we can to the best of our ability. We will choose to give the enemy no right. God's ways, period, no but. We will give the enemy no right. I hope that that's an example you will follow. I'm praying that for everyone here. I pray that you will dethrone the enemy in your life. I pray that you will take the car keys away. I pray that you will stop inviting the dinner. I pray you will give him no right. 
And I want to close by talking to those of you that have never made Jesus your king. Ultimately and unfortunately, the enemy has every right in your life because your life belongs to him. You see, until you have that moment in life where you say, thank you, Jesus, you died for me, I want to live for you. Until you make him your king, until you make him your Lord, until you make him your savior, whatever language you want to use, until that moment, God's blessing and protection is not there, except again, out of his great mercy. Because you don't belong to him yet. And I want to give you an opportunity to change that. If you have never made Jesus your king, I want to help you do that this morning. The good news is I'm not going to embarrass you or make you do anything awkward. But right where you're seated, I'd like to just lead you in a conversation. Would you all join me? Pray something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And now I want to live for you. I thank you that you have impeded the power of Satan in my life because of your love, your mercy, and your forgiveness. And my simple prayer in this place today is that you would give me a life of great meaning and great purpose in your kingdom. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash gracelifeme and on Twitter at gracelifechurch.com.